you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles. And if you just wave to them or do something to get their attention, uh, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hand. And that way you can hear the word this morning, but also read along on your own, which is always uh, the added blessing of a deeper understanding and penetration of the word of God. Sunday mornings were uh, studying this book of First Peter, and we pick things up this morning, chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on the Father, and we do, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I'm glad my faith and my hope are in God this morning. I hope it's true for you as well. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. We love it. We love what it does in our lives. And we acknowledge, Lord, the necessity of what it does in each one of our lives. This living book that your Holy Spirit gives life to and application to in our lives. And, of course, Lord, we never want to turn to it independent of you. We love to acknowledge the ministry of your Holy Spirit through your word and we pray, Lord, that now as we continue our worship of you and the study of your word, that your spirit would continue to be strong in our midst and speak to us right from your heart, Lord, the things that you know that we need to hear as your people in the middle of this pilgrimage called life here on planet Earth. And we ask it of you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Many of the trials that we face as Christians in this fallen world are trials that are common to all men and all women, whether they are Christians or whether they are non-Christians. Things like the threat of crime, the threat of violence, the threat of war, the need for food and for clothing. Uh, economic downturns hit us equally, job layoffs, none of us are immune to these things, the pressures of work, temptation to do wrong, uh, difficulty and challenges in family relationships, whether in a marriage or in the raising of children, illness, and so forth. Each of us are have to face these things in this world. But on top of these things, the Christian also faces trials or difficulties or suffering that others do not. Things that come our way because of the simple fact that we are Christians, because of our faith in the Lord Jesus, and because of the life that he produces 
in anyone that puts their faith in him. We know what the Jewish and the Gentile world did to Jesus 2,000 years ago, largely rejecting him, beating him beyond recognition, and ultimately crucifying him. And we must not as Christians expect the world to treat Jesus in us by the Holy Spirit any differently than it treated Jesus 2,000 years ago. And so to this day, Christians all over the world suffer rejection for their faith, persecution, the mocking of our values, the mocking of what we believe and what we hold dear in life. We face spiritual warfare that the world doesn't know anything about. We also face the challenge of going against the stream of this world in terms of its morality, in terms of its values. And we face the added challenge, those of us who are parents, of raising children to also go against that stream. And on and on and on that list goes of what we uniquely face as Christians. And these Christians the Apostle Peter wrote this letter to were being targeted for very, very violent persecution for the simple reason that they were Christians. And the persecution against them was not just economic, but it it was a physical, uh, active persecution by the world-ruling empire at the time. Imagine being a simple Christian in a simple little village or a simple little town in this gigantic thing called the Roman Empire under uh, Caesar Nero has now decided that they are going to uh, take the fullness of the power of the Roman Empire and now wield it against you simply for being a Christian. Because this kind of persecution is directed at a person simply for being an obedient, faithful Christian, when we find ourselves in the middle of this kind of a persecution, we can... uh, Uh, It can dawn upon us that uh, all of this would simply go away if we were willing to turn down our light of our life, if we were willing to compromise our faith in Christ, to begin to selectively disobey God's commandments, or if we were to backslide, or through some other act of disloyalty to Christ, hiding our faith in him, hiding our relationship with him, hiding the fruit of what he does in our lives, the Christ-like life, it begins to dawn on us, you know, I could uh, rid myself of an awful lot of what the world is meeting out against Christians at this time if I was simply willing to do that. And in a very, very strong message of tough love, Peter lets us know that that is not an option for a Christian. Disobedience, backsliding, compromise, or disloyalty to the Lord are not options for attempting to escape that trial and suffering brought on by persecution for our faith. And Peter is in essence saying it's not an option. You can't do it. Don't even think about it. And in these five verses, the Apostle Peter gives us three reasons why. First, 
in verse 17. Because the Lord impartially judges our lives as Christians according to each one's works. And here Peter reminds us that we are to remember that not only are our persecutors watching our lives for an opportunity to persecute, but that God is watching our lives as well. In other words, if I take my focus off of God and I place it entirely on the difficulty of the circumstances or upon those that are persecuting me, then my tendency will be to think of solely of how I can escape my difficulty rather than realizing that God is watching this scene as well. And then with that realization is the desire then to be faithful to God in the middle of this trial. The knowledge that he is watching my life produces a desire within me to be faithful to him. There is some kind of, they have a name for it. I don't know what the name for it is. Probably some of you do. But there's this phenomenon in sports that occurs, and that is that athletes typically perform better when they know they're being watched by an audience or when they're in competition with a fellow athlete and, uh, and they know that there's a comparison kind of thing that's, that's going on. So when they're being watched by an audience or by their peers or their loved ones, uh, then, then they rise to a, a, a greater height in their performance than if they were just training all by themselves on some kind of a lonesome road somewhere. Well, in a spiritual way, that knowledge that we have, what's I think commonly called, wonderfully called, an audience of one in God, it does something good inside of us in terms of remaining faithful to the Lord in difficult circumstances. Now, this judgment of God has a present and a future aspect to it. In other words, God is presently judging uh, our works, as I mentioned, but he's also one day going to judge our works, our lives in the future. Now, concerning this present aspect of his judgment, it's important during times of trial and suffering or persecution to realize that God is judging our lives presently. Because what that does uh, in, in me is that it helps me to realize that if I'm tempted to disobey his commandments in order to escape the suffering or to escape the trial or the difficulty or the persecution of man, that that never solves my problems. Because if I compromise or backslide or disobey God's word in order to get out from under the heat of the current uh, persecution, that now I have delivered myself into a place where God who is watching my life must then uh, begin to actively discipline me or to chasten me. And so he and he will not cease his discipline or his chastening in my life until I've turned back to uh, a an obedience to him. And so disobedience or compromise never solves anything. It only makes everything worse because now this friend that I have in God, now I'm less confident in that friendship 
and then I'm now going to be tasting the broadness of his hand you know, in, the, in the discipline. And so it only always makes things worse, and so we shouldn't consider it. There's a future aspect of this judgment as well. And the Bible teaches that one day each of us as Christians are going to stand before Jesus. I'm going to look into his eyes. I'm going to look right into his eyes one day. And you're going to look into his eyes as well. And we're going to give an account for our faithfulness to be obedient to his word and for our faithfulness to be obedient to his calling upon our lives. Translation, our Christian service. What he's called us to accomplish on his behalf in this world. The Bible teaches that all judgment has been given to Jesus. Jesus said, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. And if we've been faithful in our obedience and in our Christian service, then the Bible teaches that we will hear from the lips of Jesus these very words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Jesus describes that in his giving of the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. No Christian who does not hear those words can ever look at their Christian life as a success. Without that assessment by God on the other side of this life, then it's a Christian life that has been wasted, a Christian life that is unsuccessful. We live and we obey and we remain faithful in order to one day hear those words from him. Well, what is required to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Well, what's required is to be a good and Faithful servant, good meaning being obedient to God's word and then faithful being faithful to his call upon our lives, whatever that calling is in this world. Now, this judgment that we're going to face one day as we stand before Jesus, it's not the white throne judgment spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, where the lost go into an eternal judgment because of their rejection of Christ. This judgment that is spoken of here is the Bema seat judgment or the uh, reward seat judgment. The Holy Spirit described it this way through the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, for you note takers. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So this judgment has absolutely nothing to do with our eternal salvation. That is ours as a gift from God, as a result of our faith in Christ. But it has to do with our faithfulness to his call upon our lives. Our presence in heaven is guaranteed by our faith in Christ. Our position in heaven is determined by our faithfulness to God's call upon our lives. And one day when we stand before Jesus and we hear those words, Peter is in essence saying, we will be thankful 
that we endured whatever hostility was directed against us for being Christians in order to one day hear those words from his lips. That's all that we want out of this life. Now, let me allow me to say a word about the fear of God and the place that it plays in all of this, because it's mentioned there in verse 17. The word fear, as it's used there in verse 17, the Greek word, it comes from a base word meaning to flee from. That's quite a fear. It, It speaks of a deep and humble fear, respect, reverence, and honor for God. We sing that song in the past, You are God in heaven. And here I am I on earth, so I'll let my words be few. It's that recognition, the gap between the creator and the creation. The two rules of the universe. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not him. <laughs> the person who appreciates the distance of that gap has a deep respect, a deep fear of God. To fear God means to obey him at whatever the cost, out of a respect for who he is and out of a respect for what he is. I think of what God declared to his people through the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. They came bringing in these sacrifices that were just junk. They're bringing the the lambs with three legs. They're bringing just just the junky stuff that they didn't want. And they said, well, God wants an offering, and so we'll just bring him. Rather than being without spot and without blemish as he had required in his law. There's just absolutely no respect for God. No fear of God among the children of Israel at that time. It's interesting that God rose up, Malachi chapter 1, verse 14, and he declared, I am a great king. God said it. Everyone in Israel ought to have been saying it. None of them were saying it. So God rises up and he declares about himself. What that nation desperately needed to remember. He said, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Allow me to declare this morning this very same thing. Let it ring out over every circumstance in our lives this morning. Our God is a great king, and he is worthy of our obedience, and he is worthy of our faithfulness at whatever the cost in any circumstance we will ever face in this world. The fear of God, as it's described in the Bible, encompasses both terror and reverential awe. A terror at the mere thought of compromise or disobedience. It should fill us with terror. 
and a reverential awe at the privilege of being able to know him and to obey him and to live for him and to represent him in this big, stupid, phony world that we live in. Now, the second reason that Peter gives for why compromise or backsliding or disobedience is not an option for us and trying to escape suffering brought into our lives because of our faith in Christ is that it would mean the return to an aimless life. Verse 18. He said, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. God has saved us from an aimless life. I don't know if you agree with that assessment of your life before Christ. I certainly believe it of mine and yours. I'll have faith for you. The word aimless there, it means empty, vain, fruitless, without purpose or direction. Paul wrote the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. And he said, and you, he made alive, God, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works and the sons of disobedience. And when he talks about you once walked according to the course of this world, the word walk means to meandered, to just put one foot in front of the other, to just wander aimlessly like everyone else did without ultimate purpose, without an ultimate Goal in life that is worthy of a human being. The Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes records the search by King Solomon to find meaning and purpose in life under the sun, under the S-U-N, the context of creation. Raised in a godly home. Raised by one of the greatest figures in the Bible, King David, exposed to all of it like a kid raised in church. A good church, a Bible church. And he reaches a place in adult life and he says, I don't know, I'm going to put all of this to the test. I'm going to try and find if you can, you can experience true meaning and purpose in life. I'm going to attempt to find the, the reason for life, meaning and purpose in life, independent of God. I'm going to take God, put him completely out of my mind, out of my heart, and I'm going to give myself completely to the creation, explore it in all of its fullness, physically, emotionally, mentally, and see if I can find meaning and purpose there. And Solomon was uniquely qualified to be successful in this search if the purpose and the meaning of life could be found there because he possessed a almost inexhaustible Wealth and power. There wasn't anything that he could think of in his mind that just in thinking of it, it could be in his hand, whether of a person or a place or a thing. Nothing was beyond the reach of his power or of his wealth. And I'll tell you, a search he did, and he tried to find meaning and purpose, a sense of fulfillment and pleasure in partying. The accumulation of wealth, 
building projects, agriculture, soil, sex, popularity, education, and even more. And what was the conclusion of his attempt to find true meaning and purpose in life in any of those things? He declared at the end of all of it that it, it is vanity and grasping at the wind, vexation of spirit. He said it is life lived under the sun with no thought of God. He said it is all emptiness and frustration. He encapsulates it in two words for the thinking person who sits down and wants to know what is the meaning and purpose of life. He said, my conclusion is, having explored it to the nth degree, it is empty and it is frustrating. He did ultimately discover where the true meaning and purpose of life is found. Because he had been raised in a godly home, the answer was sitting right under his nose. And he declared at the end of that book of Ecclesiastes, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here's the meaning and purpose of life. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It's interesting uh, concerning Solomon's search. You look and say, well, why did God include it in the scriptures? Why not just make it Solomon's individual search? And is it really worth putting in the scriptures? He put it, God put it in the scriptures because Solomon searched on behalf of all of us. How many people live their entire lives convinced that they haven't yet found the true meaning and purpose of life because they lack the money to do so? They lack the education to do so. One more degree, that'll do it. Or they lack the opportunity to do so. So they convince themselves that they're just one raise away, one vacation away, one promotion away, one degree away, one relationship away, one hobby away, one accomplishment away from finally having this sense of experiencing true fulfillment in life. And Solomon teaches us that it's a lie and it's a self-deception. We can only know true fulfillment as human beings when we are engaged in the single great thing that we have been created for. And the single great thing that we have been created for is relationship with God. And until I am engaged in the thing that I've been created for, there will always be the sense there must be something more to life than I have experienced for the simple reason that there is something more to life than what I have experienced. And that something is the something that we've been created for, a relationship with God. Augustine wrote and he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We really do, as the popular saying goes, each one of us have a cross shaped hole in each one of our hearts. You can pour the whole world into that hole and it will never fill that heart. Only the cross, only a relationship with God through Christ will ever bring that satisfaction and that sense of fulfillment.
Now, the possibility of walking away from God, whether by backsliding or by a simple willful act of disobedience and thus being disloyal to this uh, relationship with God, it must have been particularly horrifying thought to Peter, and it is to many of us. For some of us, it's not an option. We don't have the margins. So a backslide isn't an option for us. Not for a day, not for two days, not for a week, not for any amount of time. <laughs> because of where we come from or where, how we're made, there's that recognition that we've got to walk close with God or all hope is instantly gone and we'll be concerned for our own stability, for our own sanity. We couldn't survive a sin-damaged, distant, estranged relationship with God. I think of Peter in John chapter 6 concerning this. Jesus in his public ministry had just finished ministering to a great crowd. He has thousands of people following him at this point in his ministry. One of the reasons that they're following him is that he has the ability to turn five loaves and two fish into a feast where thousands can be fed. So now Jesus looks like a meal ticket. So he's got a lot of people following him for a lot of the wrong reasons. And in John chapter 6, Jesus stands up and he begins to speak to them in some of the strongest words of his public ministry of what is required in order to be a disciple of his. And as he lays those requirements down, this gigantic crowd that was out in front of him began to melt away until it's almost completely gone. And Jesus is standing with the twelve apostles or disciples, and they've got to be looking and saying, this is no way to build a religion or to build a church. I mean, you're taking it from thousands to nothing. And yet the requirements of Christ to be his disciple, they never change. It's the truth. He didn't want them surprised further down the road. This is the commitment that it will take. And he spoke it to them. And then Jesus, as the crowd melts away, turns to the disciples and he said to them, do you also want to go away? One of the most amazing pictures of vulnerability of God before man in all of human history. These are the demands of discipleship. This is what it will require to be faithful to me. It is the same today. It will never change now We've seen what the crowd has done with those demands. He says to the twelve, now, will you leave me also? And Peter then spoke on behalf of all of them, and he declared, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. How could we ever go back to aimless conduct, to meandering after what we have experienced with you? And when Peter said, to whom shall we go, for you have the words of everlasting life, that tells me that he had thought about it. He had thought about his options. 
And in the thinking about those options, realized that he couldn't do it because there was no comparison for however difficult the Christian life might be between that life and just having an aimless, meandering existence out in the middle of this world. I'll tell you, as Christians, we have been forever and wonderfully ruined in terms of ever returning to the emptiness of our life and being satisfied again. Once we lived in it, but we didn't know any better. But now we've had the best. And there's no going back to it except to sear a conscience or to harden a conscience to live in the middle of it. For all of its problems, all of its challenges, the Christian life is the richest, most satisfying life a person can live. And Peter knew it, and he wanted these people to know it as well. The third reason that Peter gives for why compromise and backsliding and disobedience is not an option to us for trying to escape suffering brought into our lives because of our faith in Christ is that we have been redeemed. The word redeemed in verse 18 means to be released upon the payment of a ransom. To be released upon the payment of a ransom. When Peter wrote that word redeemed 2,000 years ago, in penning this letter, the entirety of the ancient world understood what that word meant. A picture would have immediately pulled up in their minds. Because in the Roman Empire, slavery was legal. It's estimated there, there were well over six million slaves, legal slaves, in the Roman Empire at the time. Now, you picture in your mind, because this is the picture that would have come to the mind of the ancient reader, the image of slaves being brought out by slave traders to a marketplace, making them stand on a raised platform, Surrounded by a bunch of men who possess the ability and the resources to be able to purchase a slave. And then the auction begins. The slaves being sold one after another to those who possess the required price to purchase them. And as they do, the ownership of the slave passes from one owner to the other. And that's precisely what God has done for us in Christ. The Bible says we were once slaves to sin, to the world, to our own selfishness, to the devil. We had no hope of ever being set free from our sin and our selfishness based upon our own human effort. And so God stepped in. And he paid the price for our freedom on that auction block. There you stood. All manner of sin, the devil, the flesh, whatever, willing to bid to make you a part of their plan, their family, their clan. God stepped up and he purchased you to bring you into his family to make you his possession and his workmanship. What was the price that was required for our redemption, for our release? 
Peter tells us the precious, priceless, sinless blood of Christ, the life of Christ. The slave could only be freed upon the payment of money, but no amount of money can free a slave, a sinner, from his sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can set a sinner free. And what's the implication of this redemption, of this purchase? The Apostle Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? But you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which our are God's. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He wrote to the church of Colossae, chapter 3. And he said, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he wrote to the Romans, Romans chapter 12, the church in Rome. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, which is acceptable to God and which is your reasonable service. The implication of this redemption is that our lives no longer belong to us, but they belong to God. And he is free to use them however he sees fit. I think that most of us in this room, if you're anything like me, you would have wasted your life any one of a thousand ways apart from Christ. And here our lives now belong to Him. He can use our lives however any way he sees fit for his glory and for his purposes. That can be hard for people to hear sometimes. Hard to accept. But we must accept it because it is the truth. And when he puts our lives in difficult circumstances, hard situations, there's that recognition and and in him and what we know of him for how he chooses to spend our lives, there's the knowledge that he never makes a bad decision and he never wastes anything that belongs to him. If we take our lives, and this is the thing that Peter is addressing here, if we take our lives back under our own control in an attempt to escape some trial or some hardship, by way of compromise or disobedience or backsliding or disloyalty to God, 
then we are nothing more than a thief, aren't we? Stealing something that belongs to someone else. Stealing from God what belongs solely to Him. I tell you, I think that thieves are a despicable criminal. They take what doesn't belong to them, what someone else sacrificed in order to purchase, and sometimes purchased, and then put mountains of work and time and effort to then turning that purchase into something beautiful. And then they come and they steal it from someone. In the same way, God has made our lives into something that is beautiful and valuable at enormous expense to himself. And we are not free ever to steal that away from him. And further, it is to violate the nature of Jesus, this Jesus that we love so much and into whose image we are being conformed. We desire to be like Christ in this world. It's a great longing of our heart. And yet when we look at the life of Christ, he did not break his commitment to the Father's will, even though that meant suffering and it meant death. And the simple point is we cannot be like Christ and take our lives back under our own control in order to escape difficulty and suffering in this world. And so for those of us who know the Lord this morning as Christians, I want to say it again. Disobedience, backsliding, compromise, disloyalty to the Lord are not options for attempting to escape difficulty or suffering brought into our lives by persecution for our faith. Because the result will be no well done from the lips of Christ, it will result in an empty, aimless life that none of us who truly know the Lord could ever settle into. And it will result in living with the knowledge that I am a thief and I have stolen from God what belongs solely to Him. It is far better to remain faithful to the Lord at whatever cost in order to hear that well done from the Lord to live an eternally meaningful life and then to honor the sacrifice of the Lord for us. This other thing that can enter into our minds during times of great difficulty, not an option, can't do it, don't even think about it. Kind of a little dose of tough love from the Apostle Peter. But it's an important dose. And we receive it from the Holy Spirit today as important to doing something important within our lives when we face these things in our lives that that is never given even an opportunity to be an option within our minds and within our decision-making. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you have a Creator 
And what you've been created for is relationship with God. And until you are engaged in what you've been created for, life will be empty and frustrating. But as soon as you enter into that relationship, wow, it all clicks and makes sense. Not just that the the blues are bluer and the greens are greener and the yellowers are yellowers. But all of a sudden you are right with this world and you are right with the God of the universe. And all of a sudden everything begins to line up and make sense. If you'd like to receive Christ into your life today, there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. They will have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God today. It's all there for the asking, all there for the receiving as a gift this morning. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they'd love to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Father, we thank you this morning for this little dose of tough love that we need to hear from you in the middle of the trials and the difficulties, the persecutions that we can be facing in the course of our pilgrimage here in this world. We just want to say, Lord, in our hearts to you, that we acknowledge you are a great God and we love you and we love the privilege of obeying you and bringing honor and glory to your name. Thank you for that privilege. And we thank you in the name of the one who has made it possible. In the name of Jesus, amen.